This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Good morning. It's Wednesday, October the 5th, 2022. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown coming to you on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit the horns and go. on the show today, Dr. Jennifer Frazier discusses a new book that explores the impact of bullying and abuse on brain health. Later in the show, John Lepke and I will talk about a lack of disability representation in political office. And Amy Widows from the Ontario Disability Employment Network describes their campaign for this year's National Disability Employment Awareness Month. I told you we'd be talking a lot about this month on the show. We already started with Kelly Braun Johnson of Completely Inclusive earlier in the week. We'll talk to Amy Widows of Odin today. And on Friday, we've got a special news panel, a deep dive edition with myself, Juita, and Michelle talking about the landscape of disability employment. So there will be no shortage of that conversation over the course of the next few million dollar relief fund to help the East Coast recover from Hurricane Fiona. The Prime Minister says the goal is to distribute the money as quickly as possible through local offices of the Atlantic Canada Opportunities Agency. This funding will support projects to repair and rebuild storm-damaged critical infrastructure such as wharves, support the cleanup of fishing gear so that boats and marine life can once again safely navigate these waters, of course help local businesses and communities rebuild and recover. The federal government wants the rebuilding effort to include construction of more resilient infrastructure. Staying in the realm of federal policy and procedure, federal officials are raising the alarm about fire safety on First Nations. Emily Javesky has the story. Federal officials are warning in a briefing note, there's no way to enforce building or fire codes on First Nations, and they say legislation to fix that would cost significant time and money. House fires have long posed a safety risk for those living on reserve, with leaders and experts tying the problem to a lack of proper housing, overcrowding and underfunded fire protection. A spokesman for Indigenous Services Minister Patty Haidu says the government is working collectively with First Nations partners to make improvements to fire protection. Emily Joveski, The Canadian Press. Let's keep with the conversation of environment. Environmental Commissioner Jerry DeMarco says the federal government is biased against listing commercially valuable fish as needing protection. Mia Rabson explains. In a new audit today, DeMarco says Fisheries and Oceans Canada did not hesitate to put fish and other aquatic creatures on a list of species that need special protection as long as those creatures had no significant commercial value. But the department used a different rationale to not offer similar protection to fish that do have an economic value, including Atlantic cod, steelhead trout and some Chinook salmon. DeMarco says the department is valuing short-term economic considerations over long-term health of fish populations. Mia Rabson, the Canadian Press, Ottawa. 
Let's Look Abroad, where the United Nations is asking for five times more international aid after deadly floods in Pakistan, left millions of survivors homeless and at risk of waterborne disease. The UN upped its request to $816 million. Chris Clay with the World Food Program says deadly diseases are spreading rapidly. There are, of course, huge numbers of mosquitoes carrying dengue, carrying malaria. There are horrific skin diseases now which are beginning to uh, emerge. And the problem that we face in the immediate three, four weeks or so now is really very much associated with the health emergency. Floods in Pakistan have affected 33 million people and killed at least 1,696 people since mid-June. Coming a little bit closer to home, the death toll from Hurricane Ian is now at least 108 people, most of those people in Florida. U.S. President Joe Biden will view the destruction when he visits Fort Myers today. Reporter Rena Roy has more. As communities across the southwestern coast of Florida try to move forward, thousands relying on the kindness of others. Basic essentials being donated with so many people now homeless. Red Cross housing more than a thousand people, including Brittany Allen and her seven children who rode out the storm in Fort Myers. It's safe. Um, it's a lot. It's a big change. Um, but we can't be anything but grateful. Biden plans to meet with residents and small business owners as part of the visit. I was talking to a couple of my friends in Florida last night, and one of them is a wheelchair user, and she was telling me a story of her entire ground floor apartment being flooded and her having to be carried out of her space because there was no evacuation plan in place, similar to the story that we shared yesterday about people in Nova Scotia advocating for a vulnerable person's registry after Hurricane Fiona. Okay, let's move to one more story here before we get to the daily polls. I've been on the Nobel Prize beat all week with you. Monday's Nobel Prize in medicine, I understood. Yesterday in physics, way over my head. Today, I think I've got some grasp on the chemistry award. This this year's Nobel Prize in chemistry has been awarded to Carolyn R. Bertozzi, Mortem Meldell, and K. Barry Sharples for their work in click chemistry. Royal Swedish Academy of Science, Johan Orkvist, explains the theory behind click chemistry. Click chemistry is uh, almost, almost like it sounds. It's all about snapping molecules together. Imagine that you could attach small chemical buckles to different types of building blocks. Then you could link these buckles together and produce molecules of greater complexity and variation. Again, probably still a little bit over my head. If you made me give a dissertation on that, I couldn't do it. But a nice job by Johan Orkvist telling us about how that was done. That was good. That was way better than trying to explain the physics to us yesterday. I do have one more story for you, and it's also out of Europe. We've talked about this on the show before, but now we have it official. The European Union has passed legislation introducing a universal charger for devices. Inez de la Coutura has more. The European Parliament ruling Apple will have to change its iPhone chargers so as to comply with new rules introducing a universal charger. Starting in 2024, USB Type-C chargers will be required for things like smartphones and tablets. And starting in 2026, the same charger type will also be the norm for laptops. Lawmakers hope the move will reduce electronic waste and unnecessary costs for consumers. Apple has argued the proposal could hurt innovation. Inez de la Quatera, ABC News.
at the foreign desk. And by innovation, they mean profits. I'm really feisty this week. I don't know why. That story is going to relate to our daily polls, which you can find at Accessible Media on Twitter or at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. Before I give you today's question, let's get to yesterday's results after we had the Quebec election. Do you want electoral reform at all levels of government in Canada with a greater focus on the popular vote? My goodness, we had a full-blown split-ski. 33% of you said yes. 33% of you said no. And 33% of you said, not sure. Oh my goodness, we can't agree on anything. Well, let's see if we can agree on today's daily poll at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. I know I've asked you a similar-ish question before about should there be a singular type of charger? Are there too many chargers in your life? Well, today we're talking more about just the reality and our strategy of dealing with the reality. So what is your strategy to keep all your devices charged? Is it multiple charging stations around your house? Is it portable chargers? Is it multi-port USBs? Or I don't care, as Ivan Drago would say in Rocky IV, if it dies, it dies. I want to explain multi-port USBs to a, for you to a second. It's a single USB that you plug in that then has like the USB-C and the Thunderbolt and the regular micro USB all connected to the same wire. Very convenient for when you're traveling. So my answer is actually a cheat. I use all of the above. I have multiple charging stations set up around my house. I've got both sides of my bed, the outlets being used. I have a sofa that has outlets built in. There's wires coming out of that. I have portable chargers near my TV. You can also use the USB ports on my TV to charge stuff. You can use my computer to charge stuff. There is no shortage of places to charge things around my house and no shortage of multiple wires around my house. So my strategy is all of the above because I don't like it when my devices get below 30%. I get nervous, nervous. So I like to keep uh, adequate supplies of power all over the place. Mike Ross, what about you? Uh, I am kind of like you. Uh, when we bought our new sofa uh, about a year ago, it came with USB ports in the end, and I kind of went, what, really? Um, didn't realize that was a thing. And now my wife and I, each at our end of the couch, have a wire coming out of there all the time. Uh, and I've also got one coming out of my uh, alarm clock in my bedroom. That's pretty much it as far as sort of like the two permanent stations my big thing is when I go looking, if, if I'm in the basement or I'm in another room and I need to charge, then I got to find the plug. And we have those <laughs> fast charging plugs. Yeah, yeah. And mine always seem to go missing some way, somehow, and suddenly find their way into my wife's nightstand, my wife's purse, my wife's school bag. She likes to, to just scoop up my fast charging plug oh and then she'll say, but I, and I'll say, I, you have one, though. It came with your phone. Yeah, but I can't find it. <laughs> well, that's interesting because now I can't find mine because you've got it. So it's, uh, yeah, we've got multiple uh, charging stations. But the big story around here is the uh, the battle for the fast charging plugs. <laughs> Mike, your role as the uh, model husband on Now with Dave Brown may have come under fire with that answer. So uh, so we're, no, we're, we're no backsliding doubt. a bit here with this one. But that's okay. Your, your wife's at work this morning, so she can't. Speak to the truth, Dave. That's what we're all about the truth on Now with Dave Brown. We are the exclusive rights holders to the truth. Let's bring in Eliza Rocco on this. Eliza, what about you? What's your strategy for keeping your devices charged up? 
Well, like Mike, um, I have a fast charger, which is the most amazing thing ever, I have to say. And me and my partner, we have one, and me and my partner fight over it all the time. Um, but my strategies, although I have similar strategies to you, I have about four to seven chargers laying around my tiny apartment in hopes that I'll look at them and I'll say, I need to charge my phone. Yeah, it's amazing how many chargers you can fit around a right? small number of square feet. Yeah. Yet, I uh, I do not remember to charge my phone ever. I remember, I always charge it at night before I go to bed. But uh, during the day, no chance. Like, I just don't remember. My phone will be at 2%. I'll go, oh, right. Oh, my gosh. Charge. That's a risky game. It's, it's horrible. It's really horrible. And I have a portable charger that I bring everywhere, too. It's just my brain doesn't want me to charge it for some reason. Have you ever considered the cases that have the charger built into the case? I do. I, I I had one. It didn't work so well. I did also get a knockoff one that maybe wasn't right, the right. highest quality. Living that Dave Brown life, looking for third party, <laughs> looking for third party electronics. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> but yeah, it didn't work that well. So I have a really really nice portable charger oh, yeah. instead. But uh, that is just I have to physically plug it in, and my brain says no, no. Can't do that. Got to say props to the higher ups at AMI. Last year, they gave us a Christmas gift that was a portable charger that offers fast charging. Oh, wow. Woo. Oh, it's good living. It's good living to have one of those bad boys laying around. Hey, Eliza, thank you for this. Thank you. That's Eliza Rocco. You can vote on our poll at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. You can share your thoughts via email, feedback at AMI.ca or you can give us a phone call, 1-866-509-4545. That's 1-866-509-4545. I love it when you leave voicemails. I wish you would do it more. So get on that. Do that during the commercial break. But not while Mike Ross lets you know about the National Weather Update. Thank you, Dave. This is your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. We'll begin in St. John's, Newfoundland, where it will be... A bit of a mixed bag today. Sun and clouds, the high will reach 16 degrees. Halifax will be mainly cloudy with some showers in the afternoon. Your high, 14 degrees. In Montreal, sunshine and a high of 20. Very nice in Ottawa today. Sunny and a high of 21. Toronto will see sunshine and a high of 22. To Thunder Bay, Ontario, mainly cloudy with a 60% chance of showers and a high of 19. Winnipeg, Manitoba has a mix of sun and cloud today and a high of 18. It'll be cloudy in Saskatoon today with a high of 12 degrees. Calgary sees a mix of sun and cloud and a high of 18. It'll be cooler in Edmonton. High there is 14 under cloudy skies. To Yellowknife, mix of sun and cloud there today with a high of 7, though there is a wind chill this morning of minus 6. And Vancouver. A mix of sun and cloud today. The sunshine will be peaking through the midday and a high of 20. The humidex will reach 25. And finally, in Victoria, British Columbia, it'll be sunny with a high of 20 degrees. And that is your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Mike, I don't know about you, but these ups and downs on the weather are absolutely killing me. Like two degrees one morning, mm. 21 degrees in the middle of the day. I'm having a real rough time adjusting these last couple of weeks. I read something on Twitter the other day which said, welcome to Canada, especially welcome to sort of eastern Canada, where it's winter at 7 a.m., it's 
uh, spring by about noon. It's summer at about three in the afternoon and fall by five thirty. <laughs> I thought, you know what? That is well put. Yeah. You need to have the, the, the you need to have the the, the the heavier coat, the sweater. If you're outside first thing in the morning, you want to be able to shed it by the midday. You want to throw it, you know, completely aside by late afternoon. And then in the later afternoon, maybe a lighter jacket, lighter sweater for that stroll back home. Yeah, somewhere around carry seven, a suitcase around. Somewhere around 7 p.m. It finally gets nice, but uh, we're, we're sort of struggling to find anywhere in between during the day. Mike, thank you for this. You bet, Dave. That's Mike Ross. He's filling in for Alex Smythe. Today, coming up next, Dr. Jennifer Frazier will discuss her new book that explores the impact of bullying and abuse on brain health. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. I think we have some sense of the emotional effect or the short-term emotional effect of being bullied. Well, today we're going to discuss a different aspect of bullying. What about the long-term effects to the brain? Well, a new book explores just that. Dr. Jennifer Frazier is the author of The Bullied Brain, Heal Your Scars and Restore Your Health. And Dr. Frazier joins us from Victoria, British Columbia. Dr. Frazier, thank you for waking up bright and early for us today. We're grateful. It's fantastic to be here. Thanks so much, Dave. This is a really interesting element to the conversation that we're having about bullying. I'm curious what sent you down this path to research this component. Well, I was working in a school and I heard directly from students that they were being bullied. They were being called homophobic slurs and being swear, sworn at and grabbed and held in for yelling in the face and sort of just really demoralizing you know, rhetorical questions. Do you even deserve to be here? You know, what are you? This kind of thing. And um, it wasn't students that were doing it to other students. It was teachers. So... I was told by the administrators it wasn't a big deal. It was just old school coaching. And, you know, I'm a researcher, so I, I just, it didn't sit with me properly. I didn't believe the headmaster when he said it wasn't a big deal. So I started doing the research and I found, you know, in psychiatry and psychology, there's, there's decades of research. And then I hit the neuroscience. And when I started to read the brain science on what it does to the brain when you are exposed to all forms of bullying and abuse, it does a lot of damage and it can be seen on brain scans. So tell me a bit more about that on the brain scans. What is the actual impact, the physiological impact to the brain? Well, I mean, we tend to ignore it, of course, in society because we can't see it. But the neuroscientists, and this, the, these are extensive studies. This is replicated extensive work that's being done. You can see neurological scars. You can see reduction of myelin. Myelin is a insulator in the brain that helps electrical messages um, travel quickly. So if you're eroding myelin, you're really hurting the brain. Uh, a person might have a, an enlarged amygdala, which is a part of the brain involved in threat detection. And, you know, if you are constantly being bombarded by um, angry 
you know, adults in your life that have power and they're blocking you from opportunities and they're, they're ignoring you or all these different kinds of aggressions that people can do, especially if they have positions of power. Um, it shows up on the brain as a lot of anxiety. Another one of the, um, things that you can see is the, uh, hippocampus, which is a part of the brain involved in memory and memory storage, um, and emotional tags, it will be very shrunken and shriveled because it's getting constantly um, hit with cortisol, which is a stress hormone that it should rise up in us and then go away. But if you're being bullied and daily you're getting subjected to this kind of harmful treatment, um, it will do really serious harm to the hippocampus. These are just some examples. And and how might that end up manifesting in somebody's personality or, or in a more long-term way in how they live their life? Well, it's really serious, actually. Um, the cortisol not only uh, goes into the brain in really negative ways in a repeat manner, but it also attacks the blood vessels. And there's there's very um, clear research from the late 1990s by American doctors that there's a direct correlation between um, adversity in childhood, this kind of bullying, abusive um, in abuse in all its forms, so physical and emotional, verbal, psychological, sexual, it all does such significant harm to the brain and body that it's connected to chronic disease in midlife and shortened lifespan. So, I mean, this is the, the message I really want to get out. I want people to understand that they think that the way they lead their lives, you know, if they have substance issues, substance abuse issues, or they are very aggressive themselves, they lose their temper um, repeatedly and, and take it out on people. These are all manifestations of quite likely a hurt brain. And what's exciting about the brain is it's very adept at repair and restoration if we follow evidence-based practices. You led me right into the next question because we oftentimes hear about how the human body and human mind do have a certain resiliency built into them. So what are some of the techniques and tactics people can use to start rebuilding and unblocking some of these uh, some of these effects of the abuse and bullying they may have experienced earlier in life? Well, the way I constructed the book is each chapter has uh, – I really do a deep dive into the science and I, I share – the damage that's being done to the brain, because I believe it's a big motivator. You know, if you don't know that you have a health problem with your body, or you don't know you have a, a really serious issue with your brain, you're not very motivated to do different things to repair it. And then in every chapter, I have an action step. And the action step is an evidence-based way to tackle um, harm done to the brain. So I take, for example, mindfulness, which is extensively documented to do really wonderful things for the brain. I'll take mindfulness and I very specifically apply it to teaching my reader to uh, visualize their brain, really see it, dialogue with it, let their brain understand that it's seen, it's understood, it's being worked with, you know, so that we're aligning the mind, the brain, and the body, and not having them work at cross purposes. Another key action step would be to do very specific brain training that's been designed by neuroscientists to do... Um, it's, it's a kind of like going to the brain gym or doing brain fitness. It's where you are actually doing exercises. It's online, it's gamified, it's inexpensive, but these exercises are critically important to maintaining brain health and to recovery if you have been traumatized by bullying and abuse. And um, just a kind of a great story. The, this brain training program was designed by Dr. Michael Merzenich and other neuroscientists, and they were really working on 
methods to try and help people that were moving towards dementia in old age. And I got a telephone call in the laboratory and it was, um, Tom, um, Oh, I just blanked on his name. The famous quarterback, Tom Brady. Tom Brady. Tom Brady. Yeah. <laughs> it was Tom Brady's trainer saying, you do know that Tom Brady daily does this brain training. And they didn't. So they went to the studio to watch him work out, watch him do his brain training. He included it in his book about all, all the things he does to be a brilliant football quarterback. And it just goes to show you, I mean, even a very high performing brain can take itself to the next level by doing this kind of brain training. Hmm. I, I want to go back to where we started because the the catalyst of this was something that you were experiencing and observing in your life professionally. I'm curious what lessons we can pull in the way that we institutionalize abuse, the way we institutionalize trauma. I know sometimes there's that criticism of, oh, society is getting too soft. But if we're breaking young people to a point that they can maybe have a very difficult time coming back or set them back years or decades, what do you think we can learn institutionally about preventing this kind of abuse and trauma? Uh, it's an excellent question. So what I found was I, because of this personal lived experience, I ended up going through the whole system. And um, because I was advocating for the, the students' rights to have an abuse-free education. And what I learned is the system is absolutely broken. We're seeing it in Canada right now with the sports. Um, we're seeing that sport after sport after sport is really struggling because, in fact, there's a lot of institutional complicity in covering up abuse and then enabling it. And we've seen this in other countries as well. Canada is not unique. But this is why in my book, I'm really pushing hard to say we need a system change. We need to understand that all forms of bullying and abuse don't make people tough, they don't make them resilient, and they don't make them healthy. That's that's a myth. And that's why I try to debunk this myth with science. Because the science is very clear very extensive, that all forms of bullying and abuse do serious harm to the brain. And we have mental health issues like we've never seen before. And bullying continues to dominate our society from workplace to church to sport to school. So either we're going to look in the mirror as adults and say to ourselves, you know, we can keep saying that bullying and abuse toughens someone up and for a tough world, but it's not true. And we can see the manifestations of that. And just to give you a sense of really how serious it is, there's a statistic that's come out in the United States that from 2000 to 2018, youth suicide, so that's 10-year-olds to 24-year-olds, youth suicide has increased 57%. Oh my gosh. So we really, yeah, it's really serious. And and I'm, this is why I'm, you know, beating the drum. I mean, I can't get enough people to understand that it's time to change. And you know, we have the science to change and there's no reason that we shouldn't. Um, I liken it to smoking. You know, when I grew up, smoking was normal. It was, uh, your doctor would smoke while he wrote you a prescription. And we also thought that made you tough. It made you like the Marlboro man. You were going to be sophisticated like Audrey Hepburn. And it was hammered into us and it was marketed to us and it was false. It actually makes you ill. And same thing with bullying and abuse. It doesn't do anything for you except hurt your brain. Dr. Frazier, you mentioned that you're a researcher by heart, and certainly having the doctor in front of your name means you've written quite a bit. You've written extensively. I'm curious what it was like to write a more commercialized book. What was that experience like for you? Um, ah, that's another really good question. I, yes, I've written very academic books, but, you know, 
I, my degree is in comparative literature and we were trained. So I went to university of Toronto for my PhD and we were trained to take different discourses and put them into dialogue and see if that changed the conversation. And I found that by putting bullying and science together, brain science, indeed, it changed everything that I understood about bullying and abuse. And that's why I wanted to share it with readers. And so I took this to my agent and it was a very academic book at the beginning. He's in New York. And he said, no one is going to read this book because it's way too academic. He said, readers want to know your story. They want to know about you. So that was a big learning curve for me. I was actually really quite uncomfortable, but I, I, I want the science to get out there. So I did write about myself and I wrote about this experience at the school and going through the broken system and, and various other aspects of how this um, pretty awful story kind of unfolded. But I do think it matters. And people say it's so funny because they find this book to be like a page turner, even though it's about neuroscience. Dr. Frazier, we're grateful for the work that you do and the time you spent with us today. Keep up all the excellent work and let's check in again down the road. Thanks so much, Dave. That's Dr. Jennifer Frazier, the author of the book, The Bullied Brain, Heal Your Scars and Restore Your Health. The book is available where you get books, including in an ebook format and available on Audible. Coming up next, Shane Baker will chat about the importance of maintaining and managing men's health. I know that I can sometimes slack on those appointments. But first, here is Canadian press reporter Emily Javesky with your Morning Business Minute. A broad-based rally pushed Canada's main stock index up by almost 500 points Tuesday, while U.S. stock markets were also up. Toronto's S&P TSX was up 825 points, or 2.8%, at 30,316. In New York, the Dow Jones was up 765 points, at 29,490. The Nasdaq was up 3.3% by 361 points, at 11,176. Japan's Nikkei was in the green this morning, up 128 points, at 27,121. In Hong Kong, the Hang Seng was up 979 points, at 18,059. And our dollar is trading overseas this morning at 73.8 cents US. From the Canadian Press Business Desk, I'm Emily Jovesky. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown. Confession time. It's okay. You can be honest. You can be, be vulnerable. I've got a question for you. What's your worst habit? I snore, but that's mostly out of my control. For me, it has to be procrastination. I put things off. I've told you that before. It's a bad habit. And most of the time, the consequences, quite minimal. However, with important things like healthcare and taking care of myself in other ways, procrastination, woof, it can take a toll. So let's talk about this some more with Shane Baker. Hey, good morning, Shane. Good morning, Dave. How are you doing today? I'm well. Always enjoy chatting with you. Shane, I find this topic very relatable when it comes to managing men's health. But what got you thinking about men's health and how we might put off dealing with health issues? 
Yeah, I, I think for the last year we've been we've been coming together every week and talking about it. Um, I have also been going to school for the last five years, and um, for myself, one of my real key interests is uh, Indigenous men and, and Indigenous men's health. Um, I'm with Gitsan and um, you know also Métis. Um, and so one of the things that I've been really looking at is is men's health and and how how do we as men um, take care or not take care of ourselves. <laughs> I, I'm, Shane, I'm curious if you have a theory on why we procrastinate when it comes to t- taking care of our health. I, I've had what I'm sure is a broken toe for eight weeks and I haven't done anything about it. I think there is a number of things. I think, I think that we have been influenced by our fathers, our uncles, our um, grandfathers. I think that uh, in the past, um, Historically, men were not eager to go to the doctor. There's kind of that old adage of, you know, the mother dragging the father down to the doctor to make sure that he gets things checked out. And I think over time that has influenced how we as men um, look at taking care of ourselves, whether it's, um, you know, thinking that it is um, not a big problem or, you know, there's better things to do. Sometimes people will have to take time off of work. Um, and and they may just not prioritize it. And so um, I think there's also a level of um, concern, hesitation. I know for myself, when I've been experiencing, um, you know, what could be deemed, you know, somewhat serious symptoms, I got really nervous and, and a little anxious about it, maybe even a little, um, you know, scared um, about what what could be happening Mm. and um and yet once i i got in and um you know and developed that relationship with my doctor i uh, i started to feel much more comfortable about approaching approaching them shane i want to scratch a bit deeper that kind of goes beyond maybe the attitudes or the fear or maybe what i would even call sort of that toxic masculinity about ah walk it off rub some dirt on it what about some other barriers that might stop us? I know we're talking a lot about the healthcare crisis across the country right now in terms of access to GPs, general practitioners, or even specialists. I'm curious how that barrier might factor into the way in which uh, we're actually willing to go seek out care. Yes, and, and that's one of the reasons why I also wanted to talk about this. Um, here in BC in particular, um, we are constantly hearing about uh, clinics being shut down, um, I would say that our healthcare is in a state of real crisis. Um, many people do not have a family physician. They have started uh, urgent primary care centers here in BC that was supposed to um, ease some of the uh, challenges and um, you know ease some of the work on on emergency because that's usually where um, you know um, lack of medical care. Uh, leads to. And so um, not everybody has that option. I feel very grateful that I have a, have a, have a family physician that I've been able to um, develop a relationship. And me, me, and me and my doctor are actually quite close and we have a good understanding of each other. And I think we also start to understand, um, you know, what works for, for me. Um, but not everybody has that. And I think, um, you know, to move on to the specialists, um, you know, with the COVID-19 pandemic, that is just um, compounded wait times. And I think a lot of people are feeling really frustrated. And, and, and I don't think that they feel that there's much 
hope um, right now when it comes to our, our healthcare because we've kind of been in this state for a little while. The, the opioid crisis is also added to things mm. here in BC. Um, you know, our nurses are feeling overwhelmed and overworked. And and maybe there's even a part of, of some people saying, I don't really want to add to more of their burden. I'll just deal with it by myself. Shane, let's let's circle back to the idea of procrastination. I, I know the answer to this is fairly obvious, but what are the consequences when we kick that health can down the road, which, by the way, I can't even do with my left foot right now with my broken toe? <laughs> well, there's a good, uh, you know, a good answer for, for that particular instance. But I think, um, you know, whether we're talking about something as serious as cancer or, um, you know, I'm, I'm 45 and, and I've been starting to experiencing different types of, of um, you know, as I get older, I think, um, you know, for some men, there's, there's issues relating to prostate and, um, and things like that. And I think if we, if we push those things off, then we are not giving ourselves um, an opportunity to get early detection. Maybe it could be a simple fix. Maybe it could be a change in lifestyle, a little bit more exercise, a little bit more water. Maybe there's a medication that, that we may need to take. Maybe there is some some physiotherapy. Um, and um, and so I think there's, there's many consequences that could be really um, quite serious. And so I would always encourage anybody, um, men or women or, or, or what, however you identify to always, um, you know, to try to get things checked out as early as possible, because it could really compound. And, and I know for myself that um, oftentimes what happens when I'm dealing with something with my health and I don't take care of it, it can kind of pick up um, like steam and 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 start to have something else that starts to act up to and they kind of start to work together yeah and so i think it's always good shane so often you and i are talking about mental health this is one of the first times we're really really jumping into the notion of physical health but either way whether it's just physical health mental health or the ways in which those intersect we might feel that we have to be private about it. I think we've somewhat normalized talking about mental health, at least to a certain degree. How do you think we can normalize talking to our friends about our physical health when we're hitting those bumps in the road? Because I have this theory that our friends might actually have some lived experience to give us guidance or say, hey, I know a great doctor or I know a great clinic or I know a great uh, blood test facility, testing facility. I, I really feel like we have to get more in the ha- habit of saying, my gosh, I messed up my Achilles and I saw this doctor. The doctor was incredible. Yeah, it's funny because I think there's been so much attention paid to mental health. And obviously, there's still more work to do. There's still a lot of people suffering in silence and not getting the treatment that they need. Um, but I think there has been a massive shift in how we approach things like depression and anxiety. And I feel really grateful to be around people um, in my community who um, are willing to talk about their mental health issues, to willing to talk about depression, anxiety, any other sort of diagnoses that they may have. Um, but I'm not sure if we're actually there with physical health. I, I know that, you know, especially things like prostate health, um, you know, other sort of problems that may be 
tied to becoming older. I think sometimes we're sh- we shy away from those things, and so I think it's important that um, that we have these types of conversations, like me and you are having right now, really frankly with our close friends, people that we trust, um, and and really ask people, you know, um, have you gone through this? Um, you know, and, and like you said, is is there is there a person that you saw that you that you really enjoyed and was really um, kind, and you really feel like you you were treated well? Shane, I'll tell you a quick story back in from in 2019 when I was dealing with some pretty significant polyps, uh, tumors on my vocal cords, and I was sick. I was in a bad, bad way to the point that I had to go to the emergency room because I coughed up blood one morning. And this put me off work for almost half a year, more than half a year. And it was so interesting because for years – I really hadn't seen very many doctors. I would occasionally go in for, you know, a cold or an antibiotic or whatever when I had an infection, but I'd never gone sort of for the full thing. And while I was off work for those six months, I really prioritized blood tests, imaging, all of these things that I'd put off for years and years. And once I started, you mentioned this before, once I started, the ripple effect kicked in. And for those six months, I would say when I came back to work in October of 2019, I'd never been healthier because I was so proactively and comfortable going to those things. Shane, how much of this is about not just simply dipping our toe in the water, but taking the plunge? Honestly, that's a great example. And even myself, I feel like I got to a place where this summer where I was really reluctant to go see my doctor and a few things built up and built up and got to a point where I didn't have a choice. I, I needed to go see them um, or basically it was going to wait until things got to the point where I probably would have needed to go to the emergency. Um, and so once I broke that sort of seal, though, um, I got in to see my doctor and we had a really good conversation. And now I've had to go back a couple of times just for some minor things. Um, but I think. Um, like you said, like getting into the habit of, of just taking care of it, you know, um, I've been having a lot of problems with my allergies and I'm finally getting an allergy test. So my partner set it up yesterday and, and to be fair, it's not life threatening, but it impacts my life in a pretty big way every day. Um, and so I'm, I'm excited to, to be able to get in there and and find out what's going on with me because Mm. it's something that I deal with every day. And, and I think that, um, you know, once we kind of get into the habit of, of having these conversations, making those appointments when we need to getting those tests when we need to, and, and using our support network if things get a little bit stressful for us. And, and, and you know, a lot of people would be willing to, to support us with uh, things that we're going, even if it means that we need a, a ride to an appointment. Shane, we're always thankful for your honesty and your genuine thoughts on these topics. Thank you for making time for us this morning. I know you're already in the thick of the school year, so all the best to you. And we'll talk to you again in a couple of weeks. Have an awesome day, Dave. Thank you very much. That is Shane Baker. We talked to him about health and mental health and mindfulness every couple of weeks here on the show. Coming up after the break, I'm going to have the regional news update. But first, let's jump into the world of business and technology. The back and forth between Elon Musk and Twitter continues. Derek Dennis has the latest in tech trends.
After spending much of the year accusing Twitter of misleading him about fake accounts on the platform and using that as an argument to back out of his agreement to buy the company, Elon Musk now says he wants to go through with his original deal to acquire Twitter. Musk sent a letter to the Delaware court basically saying take away the lawsuit from Twitter and we'll buy it at the original $44 billion, per share price. Wedbush Securities' Dan Ives says Twitter sued Musk for trying to back out which led to disclosures that hurt the Tesla CEO's case. It was a, a long, expensive court battle, but also from a PR perspective. I mean, it would be another black eye from us. Ive says the deal could now close within the next week or two, and after that, expect some changes at Twitter. There's going to be a lot of transformation that's going to need to happen to turn this thing around. With Tech Trends, I'm Derek Dennis, ABC News. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. I have the regional news update for you. British Columbia's attorney general says arresting more people to curb incidents of violent crime across the province is futile. Murray Rankin says the problem is complex. Mr. Speaker, I will end with where I started. The honorable member herself referred to the complexity of this problem simply arresting people out of, uh, out of the situation we know is going to be futile. We need to do so much more, and that is what we're doing. The Liberals are calling on Rankin to issue a directive to Crown prosecutors to ensure more alleged criminals are held in custody until their court dates. Moving over to the prairie. Prairies. It's not a singular prairie, it's prairies. Manitoba could enact new restrictions on protest outside hospitals and schools. Shannon Martin has introduced a private member's bill in the legislature that would create buffer zones around schools and healthcare facilities of between 50 and 150 meters. Any medical service available in Manitoba is a protected service that any individual who is accessing it uh, should be protected from any kind of harassment or any effort to dissuade that. If the bill becomes law, people could be fined or jailed for trying to prevent people in the buffer zones from accessing health services or for harassing health care providers. Speaking of protest, police are trying to clear a protest camp on the front lawn of the Manitoba legislature. Justice Minister Kelvin Godson says the legislature lawn is not the place for encampments. It's a place to be safe and it's a place to come and have your views heard, but not to come in and, and stay and cause, cause others to feel unsafe. The camp has been highlighting a variety of issues from the discovery of unmarked graves at residential schools to COVID-19 restrictions and conflict in the Middle East. Let's head into Ontario, where the provincial government is putting an additional $342 million towards energy efficiency programs, including paying some customers to run their air conditioning less often on hot summer days. Energy Minister Todd Smith asked the independent electricity system operator to suggest new conversion initiatives and he conservation initiatives, and he's announcing that he is accepting its recommendations. Smith says initiatives include enhancing the Save on Energy Retrofit program for business Businesses, institutions, and municipalities. All these upgrades would not only reduce demand on the provincial grid, but also reduce energy use and operational costs. That's money saved, and it can go back to better services and creating new jobs. 
Households with central air conditioning and a smart thermostat can volunteer to allow the system operator to reduce their cooling load for bringing down the peak demand in the summer in exchange for getting paid an unspecified incentive. Unspecified incentive. I would need to know specifics before I volunteered for that. And we'll talk to Mike and Eliza about that in just a second. But let's finish in the Atlantic, where Nova Scotia housing advocates are warning the province that the housing crisis is likely to become more severe. During a legislature committee meeting yesterday, the executive director of Phoenix Youth Programs said the province's lack of affordable housing has been years in the making. Tim Crooks says existing housing networks are stretched to a breaking point. He says much more needs to be done to support those who are homeless or struggling to afford rent. I want to bring in Mike Ross and Eliza Rocco for a quick thought on that story out of Ontario as a way to reduce strain on the grid, offering people an unspecified amount to lower their air conditioning during a heat wave. Mike, what is the specified amount it would take you to turn off your AC during a heat wave? To turn off? Yeah. Uh, I don't think I don't think there is an amount to turn it off. Um, we have made a, a concerted effort to up the number of degrees that we normally keep the house at. So, for example, right now, you know, you were talking earlier about how cold it is in the morning, and it is, uh, but we're not putting any heat on. So I've got the furnace set at 22 degrees, and it basically stays there. I'm just checking my. We've got the uh, the uh, the Nest app, so everything is automated, so I can set it and forget it. And I'm looking right now; um, it keeps a, a history of our energy use in the house. And so our furnace slash air conditioner hasn't been on since at least September 25th; hasn't been used at all. Um, and it's been a smart way to look at to, to to sort of manage it, even through the summer. Most of the summer, it was at 22. And four times a day for about an hour, I'd drop it to 21, Mm. basically when we were just before going to bed and then middle of the night just to cool things down a little bit. But I think if you manage it that way, it's just smarter than just shutting it down, especially for people, you know, who who are more vulnerable to to the heat. You know, it, it just... There's no money. There's no amount of money. I think that yeah. you know, unless it's like a, a million dollars or I, something. I, like I, I, yeah, no, I, I got to be comfortable. I, I don't. I don't think the solution to increasing heat waves due to climate change is telling people, well, turn off your air conditioning more, and we'll give you some money. It feels like you're kind of robbing Peter to pay Paul at that point. Eliza, you live the condo life like me. I'll tell you this: it would take a lot of incentive for me to turn that AC off during the summer because my my unit gets real hot real fast. What about you? What do you think that that specified amount would be to get you to turn off AC during the summertime? Well, right. The first, I moved into this condo, this is my new condo, um, in April. Before then, I have never, ever lived in a place with air conditioning. Okay. So I'm really used to that. I Don't get me wrong. I love... I love my new AC. It is so beautiful. I do not suffer any longer in the summer. But, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of used to also the heat. So okay. I don't think it would okay. be that hard for me. All right. But, like I said, I've gotten used to the air conditioning. So it would have to be a decent amount for me to give that up. I also went a long chunk of my life not having 
AC. But then as soon as I got a taste of it in 2012, I've (laughs) been unable to look back. Eliza, thank you for your thoughts on this one. I want to remind you, I want to put a podcast alert up there for you out there in listener land. Once you're done watching our show today or listening to to our podcast on your favorite podcasting platform, you should download the new episode of Kitchen Confession, where Mary Mamaliti will chat with Kaylin Allen, the creator of Karen Kalen reacts on Twitter. Together they discuss his transition from a viral success to broadcast TV, plus his secret secret to great home cooking and a few of his favorite food memories. You can find Kitchen Confession on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn Radio, all kinds of good spots where you can find AMI podcasts. And uh, don't forget to like, subscribe, and share with your friends because sharing is indeed caring. You can also share with us by giving us your feedback about the issues we talk about on the show, your feelings about the questions that I ask, or my overall performance. Don't worry, I have thick skin. Send us feedback by emailing feedback at ami.ca, feedback at ami.ca. You can find us on social media at Accessible Media on Twitter, Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook, or you can pick up the phone and give us a ring, 1-866-509-4545, 1-866-509-4545. Our ears and eyes are open to your thoughts. Coming up after the break, I have a few more news stories for you and Brock Richardson stops by for a sports chat. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. It's Wednesday, October the 5th, 2022. Coming up in the second hour of the show, Amy Widows from the Odin Network, that's the Ontario Disability Employment Network, will tell you about their campaign for this year's National Disability Employment Awareness Month. And we'll talk with John Lepke. We'll discuss the lack of disability representation in political office. Just before we bring in Brock Richardson for a sports chat, I've got a couple more news stories for you from the international file. European Union countries are imposing new sanctions on Russia. The new sanctions include a price cap on Russian oil, curbs on EU exports exports of aircraft components, and limits on steel imports. European European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen says Russia is using energy policy as a weapon. Putin has launched Russia's first mobilization since World War II, treating hundreds of thousands of young Russians as cannon fodder. Many months, he is using energy as a weapon. And an update on the combat on the ground. Russia is under increasing pressure in Ukraine, where counteroffensives in the northeast and now the south have pushed troops back. Reporter Patrick Rievel says Ukraine has made considerable gains. This Ukrainian counteroffensive broke behind the Russian lines and pushed down the Dnieper River. And what that did was it undercut the Russian front line further north. The further the Ukrainians drove, the more chances were that the, the Russians would be entirely encircled by them. And essentially what has happened is the Russian front line has now collapsed. They've had to fall back. And a very large chunk in northeast Kherson of the Russian line has, has basically imploded. The United States announced it would provide an additional $625 million in military aid to Ukraine, including more of the advanced rocket systems that have been credited with the 
advancing counter-offensives. That's your look at international news. Let's bring in Brock Richardson to chat about sports. Oh my gosh, Brock, every day we think, okay, maybe today's going to be a little bit of a slower day and then just so much happens in the sports world. Let's start in baseball where last night, New York Yankees outfielder Aaron Judge broke the single season American League home run record by batting dinger number 62 and uh, somebody made quite the attempt to grab the ball. Yes, yes, they did. Um, What a... Way to uh, start the second game off last night. Lead off dinger, and as soon as it, it, that certain sound of the bat, you just know, okay, he's got good enough contact on that. And what a home run it was! They showed it like 7,000 times in different angles, and it was just wonderful to watch. Um, I, I, I also like the fact, Dave, that other networks also sort of brought it to you as like a uh, breaking news when you were watching, you know, different other baseball games. They all kind of said, oh, history was made. I love that as well. Um, one of the things I said to you yesterday was, if he doesn't get it, let's discuss the pressure. And I think that's the misnomer of some audiences is, is that it's just a record. It's just a home run. Just go and hit one. Well, it's not that easy for one. Two, when you have that kind of record that you're wanting to break, you do feel a weight on you of like, well, I've only got X number of bats left. And so there is a level of pressure. And they kept lamenting last night after he hit the home run. This is the first time we've seen him smile since, you know, the game in Toronto when he got the tying uh, home run. And and there is a level of pressure. So big deep breath for Aaron Judge and he can uh, go on and recognize that he broke the record. Same as... Albert Pujols breaking the uh, 700 club, same kind of mm. pressure and same kind of feeling, to be honest. I, it, Brock, it's so funny. All summer, I was really enthusiastic about the Aaron Judge run. And in the last two or three weeks, it's been such overkill for me because I had the realization Barry Bonds is a single run, single season home run king with 73, 62, way less than 73. But I do understand it's a Yankees record. It's an American League record. I'm going to put the quotation marks up here. It's allegedly clean. It's a clean home run record, whatever that means, even even though Barry Bonds, Sammy Sosa, and uh, Mark McGuire never actually tested positive for using steroids. We've just decided collectively that they weren't clean. Either way. Either way, it's still something to celebrate. I just thought things went a little bit overkill the last month. I thought it was underkill in the early days of the chase. I thought it deserved more attention, and then it quickly went into overkill, which is media criticism, which no one wants to hear me offer. So we'll move on. But you wanted to ask me a question about if I'd been the individual who dove like two rows of seats to catch that ball, what I would do with it once I caught it. Yes, so what would you do with it if they came over and they said, hey, that's Aaron Judge's uh, record-breaking home run? What's the first thing you're saying that you want back in exchange for that ball? So I'm going to bounce the question back to you in a second, but I've actually got a little bit of a list here. I've got, you know, they always talk about uh, musicians having their rider, like only green Skittles in the dressing room. I've got a little bit of a thing here. Number one, I want the meet and greet. I want to shake the man's hand. I would like some kind of autograph. I would like an autographed picture or an autographed or an autographed baseball, an autographed bat, an autographed jersey, something like this, right? I want the meet and greet. I want some swag. But here's what I also want, Brock. 
I'm going to get my lawyer involved on this one. I want to know if this thing ever gets sold, sold, that I'm going to get a piece of it. I'm not saying I want the whole piece of it. I'm saying I want 3 or 4% of the proceeds because if I'm going to be the good-natured human and not sell this to a collector when it's hot today, then I want to make sure in the future if this thing gets sold that I'm getting a little cut of that as well. If the profit principle kicks in, I want mine. What about you? Yes, I would also say on the picture, and I don't know if this is possible, but I want to go down and shake Aaron Judge's hand and I also want a picture with me holding the ball at least in one picture Ooh. because none of none of my friends are going to ever believe that I caught this ball because even though they tried to zoom in and do all this and maybe it's because of my vision, Dave, but I couldn't really tell who it was between, you know, anyone else. So I would want the picture of the ball in my hand as one picture so that I could say, look, here's the proof. Here's the evidence that I caught the ball because otherwise it's just hearsay, really. Yeah. And and secondly, if 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 I'm a Yankee fan by chance, I want to be the home plate lady in New York, and I want to be sitting there for however long with season tickets of you know Yankees tickets. I want the whole thing, and I'm with you. I would want a chunk of that money as well because. If I'm not a good-natured human being, I could have gone and sold it for quite a bit of money. So mm-hmm. I deserve a little bit of kickback, and I completely agree with you. I like the season tickets idea. This is That's a great suggestion. I like that one a lot, Brock. Brock, let's get to a quick football note here. Uh, the Pittsburgh Steelers did officially what we saw them do already in practice on Sunday and named rookie quarterback Kenny Pickett their starter moving forward. Yes, and I like this i think that uh kenny pickett is a really really good football player he was uh one of the main you know stays in college football in 2021 he had uh basically doubled his uh passing completion in college last year than what he did before uh, 42 touchdowns which is also doubled and again this is a guy who who was third voting in the most valuable uh, player in college last year. And so this is a good move. I love it. I think if you're going to do this, you got to give the kid a shot. And there's no better time than now to do it, Dave. Yeah, they drafted him in the first round. So it seemed inevitable that he was going to play at some point this season. And the starting quarterback they signed in free agency, Mitchell Trubisky, was just awful through the first few weeks of the season. So, yeah, let's get Pickett in there with his teensy tiny hands and see if he can throw some touchdown passes. A lot of good weapons in Pittsburgh, but a very bad offensive line. So we'll see if uh, Kenny Pickett gets beat up a little bit here in his first couple weeks as a starter, but he's throwing to some good players. So that's a bit of good news if you're a Steelers fan. And the other other thing, too, is, Dave, that everyone has to understand that this is no longer college. This is the, the big lights, so I'm not expecting him to, you know, throw, you know, 42 touchdown passes for the rest of the season. I I just don't think that's feasible. But if he can make a difference, that's, I think, what Pittsburgh's looking for. And 
sorry to steal a cliche, but get his feet sort of wet in the in the league and say, let's see what we can get from him and give him some runway at the, as they have. There's more than half the season left. So let's see what he's got. And in order to do that, you got to give him a little bit of runway, which they've done. Absolutely. Brock, let's uh, get to what is always a great evergreen topic in the world of sports. On slower news days, people love to talk about rule changes that they want to implement. And you've got three. So let's start in football. What do you want to change in football if you were the commissioner of the NFL? So the one thing that has been driving me absolutely bonkers this year, and I know it happens every year once or twice or a few times, is that that play clock seems to be going to double zeros more often than not, and they let the play go. And for me, my answer to that is, can we have an audible noise that goes off? Now, my initial thought, Dave, was put it off in the stadium. But then I thought, "Uh, I don't know with the noise if that would really solve it. So my second suggestion is, let's put it in the referee's ear. They already have the communication devices for the officials and them so that they can hear each other better. Let's add another audible noise where if this noise goes off, then you know the play clock hits zero because there was a couple of touchdowns last week uh, that were allowed when the play clock went to zero. And that's not, that's not part of the game. Like why do we have a play clock if we're going to allow plays to move when it is clearly at double zeros? And I would relate it to, for those of you that are familiar with tennis, I would relate it to the let, where if it hits the the wire um, just ever so lightly and it ends up in play, that audible noise goes into the umpire's ear also, and that will allow the umpire to understand that that happened. And I think the NFL could serve themselves in, in, in doing the same thing. Yeah, it's like a shot clock in basketball. I actually like your idea of saying, let's put this as an open, audible sound in the arena so there's total transparency. That thing goes off, the play's dead. Five yards. Away we go. Brock, I don't want you to take too long on this baseball rule because I think it's pretty self-evident, but lay out what you want to change in regard to sliding in baseball. I would like to see there be some sort of amendment on when we get a review of slides into second second base. I would like to see them figure out a way that instead of looking at the replay and saying, well, did his finger come off ever so slightly? I'd like to see them put in a rule where they kind of allow the player to stand up off the base so that they're not twisted and like looking like pretzels to stay on it. I understand the rule is not so much uh, meant for players to come right off the bag, but I think we spend enough time, Dave, with looking at whether or not the, the finger came off by a centimeter, and I don't think that was the design of the rule Um when we looked at reviewable plays. Yeah, keep the game moving fast. What I would do, Brock, if I could do a big rule change, I would just eliminate commercial breaks as much as possible during games. So we would just have, oh, like, they, like, like they do in soccer, where there's just something sponsored pops up on screen, and we keep the broadcast and we keep the game going as fast as possible. All right, you've got one more note here, Brock, and that's in regards to the NHL playoff formats we recently switched to a 3-3-2 system back in 2013 it's come under some scrutiny what do you want to see in regards to the hockey playoff format go back to the old style one plays eight two plays seven three six four five eastern conference you earned the right to be there forgo these divisions i don't like it i think it's ridiculous i think when you think about it there's been some matchups where it's been two 
really good teams that have, you know, beat each other up and they've been out in the first or second round. That's not by design. Again, in my opinion, I think the best should play the best. And it's that simple. One versus eight, two versus seven, three, six, four, five. Simple way. Let's go back to it. Brock, I'll go a step further. I want one through 16. I want to eliminate the conferences completely. There's no reason why a team with the 19th best record in the league should get into the playoffs ahead of a team with the 15th best record in the league. I think we need just to eliminate conferences completely, one through 16, and reseed the whole operation. I think that would be a lot of fun. Brock, we were going to do a little hockey preview. We're out of time. Don't have time to get to it today. Hold your thoughts on the NHL preview. We'll dabble in that tomorrow and then deep dive on Canadian teams next week. Sounds like a plan. That is Brock Richardson. He is the host of the Neutral Zone. Mike Ross is filling in for Alex Smythe, and he has the national weather updates. Thank you, Dave. We'll begin your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada in Newfoundland, Cornerbrook. Mainly sunny today with a high of 17. Charlottetown PEI has a mix of sun and cloud and a high of 15. Off to St. John, New Brunswick next, where it will be cloudy with a high of 17. Quebec City, sunny today with a high of 18. Toronto will be sunny with a high of 22. Heading up to Sault Ste. Marie, mainly sunny and a high of 21. Let's go to Manitoba and Brandon. We'll see a mix of sun and cloud today with a high of 20. Regina will see increasing cloudiness through the day and a high of 15. Let's go to Alberta next. A mix of sun and cloud for Lethbridge and a high of 20. Red Deer, a mix of sun and cloud and a high of 17. To Yukon and Whitehorse, a mix of sun and cloud today with a high of 13 degrees. It'll be sunny and a high of 20 degrees in Kelowna, BC today. And finally in Vancouver, a mix of sun and cloud, high of 20 and a humid X of 25. And that was your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Thank you very much, Mike. Coming up next, John Lepke will discuss, and I'll lament, the lack of disability representation in political office. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown. Just yesterday on the show, we shared the results of the Quebec provincial election and talking quite a bit about electoral reform. And you'll also find us talking about a lack of platforms that relate to disability during election campaigns. But how about this? Have you ever considered the lack of politicians who identify as having a disability? Let's talk about this more with John Lepke. John just wrote a great column in Teed and Vogue about this issue. Hey, good morning, John. Good morning, Dave. So, John, tell me, what did you explore in your Teen Vogue column? Sure. So my piece for Teen Vogue alongside uh, my friend and colleague Alex Green was an article for their disability and justice package. And it was exploring for the U.S., although it is also relevant in Canada, let's be honest, um, the legal barriers or or some some of the barriers to disabled politicians um, existing in, in those spaces, whether they are local and um, municipal or up to, in the U.S.'s case, um, uh, state and federal. 
So this article, national, I suppose. Yeah. So, so, oh yeah, certainly. I mean, the, the, it's one of these things where we're seeing it right across levels of government, whether it be at the lowest levels, even things like school board trustees, we just don't see a lot of disability representation. So j- go a little bit deeper into this article that you wrote for, for, for Teen Vogue. What were some of the conclusions that you guys drew? Sure. So, so the foundation of that article was that uh, a, a senator from Pennsylvania is is suggesting or bringing forward some legislation to remove barriers because a lot of barriers in the U.S. related to this representation is related to the amount um, to whether running for office renders you ineligible for things like uh, uh, Medicaid and Medicare um, and, and health programs. And so this legislation, part of what this legislation is trying to do is remove those barriers. Now, the advocates that Alex and I spoke to are saying, yes, remove these barriers, but also it's unclear that the legislation as suggested puts forward that you could run for office, which is currently something that you may or may not be barred from um, according to current uh, requirements of, of different American systems. I won't go too granular there. Um, and, and what advocates are saying is, yes, let's take this movement forward, but also there's not a lot of um, there's not a lot of clarity as to whether when you get if you win that election and you you start receiving money from that, even if it's minimal, whether that would then kick you off of uh, benefits. Mm. So this article had an American focus, which makes sense because it was published for Americans. But certainly there has to be a Canadian application here. So what does disability representation look like in Canada as we head towards municipal and provincial elections? Absolutely. I I think most broadly um, we see the barriers to, you know, in order to run for public office, you need money and you need support. And in a lot of ways, you need to see people that have gone before you. So, you know, we see folks like Carla Coltro, we see the former mayor of Vancouver, um, we have a local NDP here who, who identifies as immunocompromised, and that uh, here being Saskatchewan, um, that caused uh, quite a uh, 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 can I call it a ruckus? I'm going to call it a yeah, ruckus. Yeah, call it a ruckus. Um, we like that word. When, this, when the SAS party decided uh, to um, uh, heckle him for wanting people to mask in the legislature. Um, and so we we don't see those people. Um, we don't see uh, there's, there's funding barriers here as well, as I mentioned. And then, you know, because the American system has, and I'm not here to be, you know, an AD, an Americans with Disabilities Act truther or anything, but um, because the Accessible Canada Act is newer and not quite as uh, as robust in some ways, um, to my knowledge that the, the sort of uh, legal uh, aspect of this, if we can call it that, is, uh, has yet to be has yet to be tested. Mm. John, I, I think about those barriers that exist, and I love the fact that your article explored some of the more legal and legislative implications, but there is just an element of politics being about optics. And, and I hate it when politics gets boiled <laughs> down simply to optics, but if you can make your opponent look mad or look uncomfortable or feel uncomfortable or limit them in some way, all of a sudden it really reflects as a bad optic towards them and then quote makes them unelectable and that's why i despise optics being like any kind of measure in politics but it really makes me think about the way in which someone with a disability oftentimes needs to advocate and say 
I need this, I need X to do Y if I'm going to do it properly or effectively. So all of a sudden your opponent can start advocating to use a space that isn't accessible for a debate or it's harder for you to go door to door and like go glad hand with people. I, I just think about all these little things, all these little barriers that exist because we live in a somewhat inaccessible place and to then have to advocate against those things ends up working against your political messaging, against the true messaging you want to do. And I just see that as being something that really affects or impacts the way someone with a disability may want to get involved in politics. Absolutely. I, I mean, if uh, uh, not to make this all about me, but as a wheelchair user, if I wanted to go door to door, um, I, I'd need some help with the stairs here in Saskatoon. Um, I think, you know, uh, to that point, we, we have seen, you know, a, a couple of candidates be able to use things like accessible vehicles. This was true for a candidate for the New Brunswick Liberals a few uh, elections ago. Um, but you're right. We don't, I don't generally walk into these uh, political spaces and ex expect to see um, disability being on the front lines of the discussion. I mean, all we have to do is play a little game, and I, I, uh, I, I didn't do this with the, uh, the Quebec election, but if you, look at the, if you look at the party platforms and hit Control F for, for searching a document on their, um, on, uh, on folks' platform documents and search for uh, disability, um, very rarely will they show up, um, and yeah. if they do, they're usually related to some, as you said, optics, some nice photo op with some, um, you know, uh, some disabled kids that make, that is supposed to make voters feel as if they are, um, they are voting for a party that cares. That's precisely what happened in the Quebec election. We shared a story about the liberal leader, Dominique Anglade, who uh, put together a policy or put together a policy suggestion that said, hey, uh, we want to create a person who is essentially the czar of disability, a disability complaints office. Of course, then as you dig a little bit deeper, deeper into that press conference and into the uh, like one or two news articles around it, uh, the word handicapped was used all the time. So even the language was poor as people were trying to talk about disability inclusion on the campaign trail. Uh, John, I want to come back to these barriers. Why do you think these barriers exist? Uh, good old-fashioned ableism would be my <laughs> first answer. Um, you know, that, that old-fashioned ableism like mommy used to make. Um, to quote whatever commercial that is from, I can't remember. Um, but also, it, it's, it is a case of not being able to see people. And it's also a case of you, you mentioned optics earlier, you know, when, when often we see, and it can seem like a small thing, but somebody, somebody puts out a policy that the other candidate doesn't agree with and suddenly it's branded as crazy. Or we saw in American elections, um, and we still see it uh, regardless of candidate, oh, would you like a candidate who struggles to go upstairs or ramps or, you know, look at the commentary on Joe Biden falling off of a motorcycle not to rehash something from 18 months ago. You know, the way that we talk about disability, disability is often used as a cudgel against, um, even by, you know, people who you would think would know better, a, a cudgel against their opponents. And so when a disabled candidate in my humble opinion, is trying to run for office, they are bumping into a collective voter memory that disability equals bad. Mm. Um, 
And it's only within cities and sectors and things like that that we see, you know, we, it, and it's often one of the things that came up in the Team Vogue piece is it takes an immense amount of privilege to be able to um, to run. And when things like income barriers come into effect, it also means that only people with a certain subset of disabled experiences end up in those positions. It's either the people that have been given the mic for a very long time, the sort of um, mostly super crip, or it's the people who are able, and this is not a value judgment, but have the capability through the way their disability affects their body and mind to hide what their disability is um, and not make it a, a talking point. John, let's finish on a positive note here. You're on the, <laughs> you're on the prairies. Are there any people locally who are doing work around legislative accessibility? Yeah, so I mentioned um, uh, the NDP MLA, uh, uh, Matt Love, previously. Um, much like with other provinces, the stories of how these legislatures, and I'm not trying to be negative here, but the stories about how these legislatures come to be accessible are, uh, to put not too fine a point on it, backroom stories. You know, they're, they're not things that are, are super publicly um, available. I think COVID has forced disability to be more of a, of a conversation in the legislature. I remember a few years ago, the, the, the largest comment on disability in the legislature outside of funding of programs was when one MLA told another one to grow a spinal column. Um, which some uh, local disability activists had, let's put it this way, some fun with um, mm. <laughs> um, pointing out that, you know, growing a spinal column is, um, you know, not a matter of want. Um, and so I think that that conversation is happening. Unfortunately, and again, not trying to be negative, but unfortunately, disability often comes up in relation to cuts for programs or in Alberta in relation to when they de-indexed uh, de AISH from, from, uh, from inflation. Uh, oftentimes it is a uh, disability still comes up as a um, in rebellion against uh, whatever cuts are happening to our communities. And so um, I guess my hope is that uh, is that these conversations keep happening, but it really does start with, uh, in my view, those those grassroots, uh, you know, the municipal and the city and as you, school board elections, as you said, the the pipeline to these larger positions. Because let's face it, there the federal ministers are always going to be the ones, um, and this is no, you know, I'm not critiquing Carla Qualtrum here federal ministers and people in power are always going to be the people that are that are trotted out as the ones that are making change in the disability community. But my lived experience tells me that, you know, just as much change can be made at the at the school board, municipal, you know, provincial levels. Oh, heck yeah. That's where best practices are formed through and through. That's where the case studies live. Hey, John, we got to get out of here. We're a little tight for time today, <laughs> but all the best to you. And yeah. we'll talk to you again in a couple of weeks. Sounds good. Thanks so much. That's John Lepke, a journalist based in Saskatoon. Coming up next, Amy Widows from the Ontario Disability Employment Network describes their campaign for this year's National Disability Employment Awareness Month. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI. (laughs) 
Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. We've been talking all about National Disability Employment Awareness Month on the show. We've referenced it a whole mess of times. On Monday, we spoke to Kelly Baron Johnson of Completely Inclusive. Kelly joined us from Montreal. We talked about if she was the czar of disability and disability employment and inclusion, what she'd like to see changed. Of course, you can find that interview in podcast form if you missed it. Just look for Monday's show. You can either look for the individual segments or you can listen to the entire show. I always encourage you to listen to the whole show because the whole show is where the magic lives. There's things you miss when you just get the individual segments. But when you listen to the whole show, you get all the fun stuff, the daily polls, the news updates. And you might say, oh, Dave, I don't need to know about Monday's weather on Wednesday. I mean, there's some truth to that. However... We're oftentimes joking around and having a good time during the weather forecasts too. It's about the fun, not just the information. <laughs> Let's talk about what the Ontario Disability Employment Network is doing to mark National Disability Employment Awareness Month. Let's speak with Amy Widows, Odin's Director of Development and Capacity Building. Hey, Amy, thank you for making time for us today. We're grateful. Oh, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So we're always trying to think about what employers should be focusing on and refocusing on. And I know Odin, in their goals, wants employers to be refocusing on bringing disability inclusion to the forefront. So tell me about this year's campaign, what you're trying to accomplish. Well, first, let's just explain where the campaign originated. So the campaign stems from a recognition of NDEAM, which is the National Disability Employment Awareness Month, which is an annual uh, campaign that happens every October, which promotes disability inclusion in business and the workplace. So every year, Odin leads this campaign to raise disability inclusive employment awareness. Our annual NDEAM campaign focuses on the many ways that disability inclusive hiring changes employees' lives and helps them succeed in the workplace, helps them to enable businesses to fill those required roles from the talent pool of people who have a disability. It allows businesses to increase their productivity, employee engagement, and profitability, and drives cultural change within a business. It strengthens that brand reputation and customer loyalty for businesses. In part, disability needs to be part of that DEI action and business conversation. So this year's campaign is, um, the theme is driving the future of work with disability inclusion. So our 2022 National Disability Employment Awareness Month campaign looks at how disability inclusion is reshaping the nature of work now and in the future. So organizations that understand the power of investing in the talent of skilled people who have a disability now invest in future success. They're driving the future of work with disability inclusion. So throughout October, Odin will focus on how now more than ever, disability inclusion is driving that future of work and making the inclusive journey uh, vital for business success. Why it's important to have a comprehensive hiring strategy that includes disability inclusive hiring. Talk about the key methods for employment service providers to effectively have conversations with businesses about disability inclusion and why disability inclusion needs to be part of that DEI conversation. So we're doing several things throughout the month of October. Uh, first and foremost, 
Odin will publish a two-part article series that will help business understand what's happening and why, and how and why they need to embrace the change that's being driven by disability by making part of their DEI business conversation. And those are being released October 6th and October 20th. Secondly, October 25th, we will release a new episode of, of, the, of our podcast, You Can't Spell Inclusion Without a D. Um, we'll also have featured guests from the Valuable 500 uh, during that episode featured. And thirdly, Lighted Up for Endeam is our grand uh, campaign that started three years ago. It takes place Thursday, October 20th. This campaign reaches coast to coast, cities, small towns, businesses, structures, municipal signs and landmarks across Canada will be lit up purple and blue for that night. The campaign itself helps raise awareness to businesses and industry about the disability talent pool and the business case for hiring inclusively. Uh, Last year, 2021, lighted up for Endeam went national. It was a phenomenal success. Over 300 structures in 113 cities and towns across all 10 provinces and in two territories participated in the Lighted Up campaign. This included over 30 federal government buildings. Some of those included uh, the TELUS Spark Science Center, uh, BC Place, the CN Tower, uh, the Terry Fox Memorial, two provincial legislature uh, legislature buildings in Manitoba and New Brunswick, and hundreds of other businesses. But more specifically and significantly, the event sparked conversation. Lighted Up for Endeam is more than a campaign. It ignites conversation about disability inclusion in employment. So that's what we're doing this year for our campaign. <laughs> My goodness, you guys are going to be busy as heck over the course of the <laughs> next uh, thirty next thirty days or so. Holy smokes, yeah, uh, yeah. A- Amy! I want to I want to backtrack to where you started there because you started by laying a great foundation of explaining to us why a month like this is so so important. So, what are the long term effects? What are the impacts on a business when they don't take disability inclusion seriously? Well, I think that when a business doesn't realize the value proposition that they'd be undertaking by um, investing in this talented labor pool, they're really going to miss out because we know that um, the disability inclusion is driving the future of work in Canada. Uh, the number of Canadians who have a disability is increasing. Uh, it's important to remember that when I say disability, I mean, there, this covers a diversity of disabilities. Um, a couple of hard facts um, to demonstrate this is that the Conference Board of Canada indicates that the number of Canadians who have a vi- uh, visible physical disability is expected to increase by 1.8% each year. So that's 3.6 million people identifying as having a, a visible physical disability by 2000, uh, year 2030. So in the years ahead, 
there are going to be more employees, more job seekers in the disability talent pool that businesses need to. Um, we need, you know, businesses need people to fill those labor needs, to stay successful and competitive, and to demonstrate their commitment to inclusion. In turn, creating an inclusive culture that reflects and meets the needs of the employees and the communities and the businesses they serve. So if businesses don't, don't take on intentional measures and strategies to adopt policies and hiring uh, processes, they're going to be missing out on this, this talent pool and, and not being able to meet the competitive edge that other businesses will. Amy, I've got, I, I don't mean to dismiss the work you guys are doing this month, but you laid it out so beautifully in that first answer that folks are going to have the opportunity to check those things out on the fly. And we'll make sure they're listed on our blog as well after the show, ami.ca slash now. But I actually want to look ahead to November as well, because the work that you and your colleagues are doing at Odin doesn't just happen in October. It's a year round thing. You guys have a huge conference coming up in November as well. How much are you and your colleagues looking forward to that? And, and what kind of conversations <laughs> are you hoping to have? Uh, you, I, you know, words can't express how excited my team and I are to be hosting the RDC conference for 2022. Um, it's been uh, three years uh, since we've been able to have this kind of event in this kind of forum. And um, we are very excited not only to be able to host the event in Toronto, but also to um, offer a business stream on the Tuesday of the conference, which is, is relatively new for us. And this is an opportunity to bring together those, those employment service agencies from the province who are our typical delegates of the ODIN conference. Um, so we're bringing together the um, employment service agencies as well as this year the business stream. And the, the intention of that is to uh, interlock those two networks and start building those, those relationships with the business community and the services that are offered throughout the province to start increasing those, those conversations, those relationships, and start building on the opportunities to increase opportunities for people who have a disability in the business world. So we will be offering this business stream as well in that businesses who attend um, and, and, and attend the first morning of the Tuesday will be offered the opportunity to have some capacity building offered to them in terms of the disability awareness and confidence training for business training. This is something that we do outside of the conference typically as a training or offering for businesses, but we are offering it as part of the session. So businesses will leave that day with a certificate of completion that they have built their own capacity and done this with intention, attended the conference, and with that became disability awareness and confident in terms of inclusive um, disability hiring. It is uh, no shortage of busy times for you and your colleagues, Amy. We're so grateful that you could make some for us today. And I think we'll be checking in again uh, before that conference in November as well, because uh, because I know we're really, really grateful for the work that you and your colleagues are doing and grateful that you made time for us today. Thank you, Amy. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. That's Amy Widows, Odin's Director of Development and Capacity Building. You can learn more about the Ontario Disability Employment Network by visiting odinnetwork.com. That's odinnetwork.com. Coming up after the break, you'll find out what's coming up on Kelly and Company this afternoon with Ramya. And I've got a question. If I can guarantee your safety, 
what is the most dangerous animal that you're willing to cuddle with? This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. Before we talk about hashtag Fat Bear Week 2022, let's bring in Ramya Amuthan to find out what's coming up on Kelly and Company this afternoon at 2 p.m. Eastern time on AMI-audio. Hey, good morning, Ramya. Good morning, Dave. We have a lot going on in the show today, but I'm very much looking forward to Fat Bear Talk, too. Oh, yeah. We'll get to Fat Bear Talk, but we can't have our dessert till you give us our dinner. We can't have our dessert <laughs> till we eat our vegetables. What's coming up on Kelly and Company this afternoon? Okay, well, you mentioned vegetables. I think roasted. With Thanksgiving around the corner, (laughs) Greg David is going to be talking to us about what he's thankful for in television and entertainment. And we're all going to give us our little uh, spiel as well of, you know, TV shows, networks, audiobooks, all the things that we've been thankful for this year. And Ryan Delahanty's highlighting uh, Mackie's Mobile Studio. And this is an initiative being run by a Pictou County musician who wants to reach artists with access barriers right in their homes. So it's a very nice thing to talk about. Uh, We're also talking money with Sir. Certified financial planner Ryan Chin, who you will know his voice on uh, Eyes on the Money with Becky Armstrong, our podcast. He's going to talk about RDSP Awareness Month. Oh, RDSP Awareness Month. Aramia, confession to make to you. I've been procrastinating to make my deposit all year because I oh. hate waiting on hold for like two hours to do it. I really wish we could just do a digital deposit. I understand, okay, if you want to make your investments or like buy something, that's different. But to do the deposit, Mm -hmm. we should be able to do it digitally. I'm sorry. This is preposterous. Yeah, I know. I make somebody else do it. Like I have a financial planner and they just do it every year and they said they would be taking it out on my birthday. So maybe that's something you can adopt. Oh, I need a financial planner in my life. This is what I actually need. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Look at Ramya living that that life. Uh, Ramya, that's excellent. I can't wait to listen to that interview. And that gives me an idea that perhaps we should talk about that on our show as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, yep. still, we like stealing your ideas on Kelly and company when we, uh, when we can. All right, Ramya, stay right, yeah. <laughs> stay right there, Ramya. Let's welcome Mike Ross into the show as well to talk about hashtag fat bear week, 2022. You might be wondering what is fat bear week? Well, it champions the brown bears of Katmai national park and preserve in Alaska. People vote online to choose their favorite bear before they hibernate for the winter. Uh, Little bear facts for you guys. The average bear in that national park in Alaska or brown bear in national park in Alaska is between 700 and 800 pounds. Last year's winner clocked in at 1423. 1423. That's a big bear. That's a big old bear. But guys, I'm not actually going to ask you about Fat Bear Week, even though we probably could talk about it for the rest of the show. Here's the question. If I can guarantee your safety, your safety is guaranteed, what dangerous animal would you want to snuggle? Some contenders, bears, big cats, a hippo, a wolf? Mike Ross, what do you say? Uh, okay, I would like to snuggle with uh, a bear, preferably a polar bear. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I don't know why. I'm just, I just, I've always loved polar bears. Um so I would go. I would go bear. I'd go polar bear. Polar bear is a good answer. I like that one. I can. Yeah. I, the, the, the whole bear thing. It's because of the way their limbs are. You feel like they could really drape themselves around you and like get a good snuggle going. Romeo, what do you think? Yeah, that's why they call it a bear hug. And I promise you, I'm not stealing Mike's answer, but I kid you not, polar bear, because I have like a five foot teddy bear at my house. And this is just the closest I can get to a real bear hug. So that's 
that's it for me. But I also love anything from the the feline family just looks like it would be cuddly if they weren't so scary. So, so Mike, as a cat. yeah, Mike, as a cat person, I was kind of curious to hear you not pick cat because there are a couple of videos popping up on social media of people who have like tigers or leopards and they're giving them little belly rubs and you heard those big deep Aww. purrs and I'm like, that seems like it could be kind of nice to be given a tiger belly scratch. Well, I've so I've done that. I've been in a pen with uh, baby lions. And, uh, yeah, so that was very interesting, a lot of fun. Uh, but even with somebody there, um, as I was holding one of them, it started to nip at me and Uh it was just like, that that was, that was a little frightening, uh, just because you have no control over that animal and you can't panic because it will. And so, yeah, it was, it was pretty nerve wracking, uh, but, but a lot of fun at the same time made for some, uh, you know, cool memories and, and things like that. And I've been around, you know, camels and elephants, which uh, have been very cool. Uh, but uh, as far as holding and, and be a really sort of up close and personal, did the lion thing, the uh, the lion cub thing, it was fun. But uh, they still got big, strong, powerful <laughs> teeth, yeah. Uh, yeah. even when they're little, little kitties. And if mama, and if mama lion sees a uh, baby lion getting a little fussy, uh, she might come through that yeah. fence. And then you got real, then you got real lion problems uh, for you right there. Uh, I got to hold a baby alligator once uh, when I was touring the bayou. Similar deal. It started scratching at me and I was like, I don't like this. I am not comfortable with this operation of holding this alligator. Ramya, what about you? A close encounter with a with a dangerous animal or a scary animal. Have you ever had one? No. I have snakes. Yeah, I've held like um, snakes uh, in Guyana and here, just the big pythons and Ooh. boa constrictors. I like snakes, so I don't really mind them. The bigger, the better. But uh, it's not the same. I, I think when I hear you guys with alligators, okay, maybe, but lions and tigers, no. I've heard that, you know, you if they love you, then it doesn't matter how big they are, but I'm a little skeptical. <laughs> you never know when a tiger's going to go full tiger on you because, you know, you can't change exactly. a tiger's stripes. That's the way they go. A leopard keeps its spots the way you do it. I have told y'all before that one of my most frightening animals or the animal that frightens me the most, I mean, amidst a series of animals, I'm pretty much afraid of everything. That's just how I, that's how I be. But for, for one in particular is the porcupine. One, because we have them around these parts, maybe not so much in North York, Ontario, but certainly uh, in some of the more far out areas of the GTA, other parts of Ontario and Quebec, you do find porcupines and they have that little sharp quill tail and they can give it to you real good. So I used to have this producer when I worked for AMI This Week out of the Ottawa Bureau, and we were doing a tour of the Eco Museum Zoo in the West End of Montreal because that was part of our coverage territory. And as soon as my producer found out that there was a porcupine den and that I was afraid of porcupines, he asked permission from the people at the zoo if they would let me into the porcupine enclosure. And I was already on camera. I was already mic'd up. It was almost too late for me to push back and say, no, I absolutely do not want to do this. And they let me into the porcupine enclosure. And right away, the porcupine started charging at me. You know why? 
because they threw cabbages and onions at me, which were the porcupine's favorite foods. So oh now gosh. I've got these porcupines charging towards me because they know I've got their food. And they're like, no, no, just hold it out to them and they'll eat it out of your hands. And as they're eating it out of my hand, you feel the guard furs, the guard quills on their faces rubbing against your skin. It was invigorating and terrifying, and I'm just as afraid as porcupines as I have before, which goes to show immersion therapy <laughs> does not work. So yeah, hold up. I had the, a similar... The pines didn't feel like similar whiskers? Encounter. Go, go ahead, Ramya. So, Ramya, to your question, the pines did feel a little bit like whiskers because okay. if you touch the insides of them, you don't get quilled. Oh, that's cute. <laughs> go ahead, Mike. Cute-ish. I had a similar encounter with wild turkeys. We were uh, off on this sort of nature trail not too far from our house east of Toronto. And we were sort of like in the bush and saw these wild turkeys. And I had my camera. I thought, wow, I'm going to get a good picture of these. So I'm, I'm approaching and approaching and approaching. And all of a sudden through the lens, I see this thing starting to dart right at me. And they're very aggressive birds. And you do not want to be pecked by a, a wild turkey. So as I'm seeing this thing through the lens of my camera coming at me, I start like just hightailing it out of the bush, tripping over branches and tree roots and such, and made it out. It's it finally stopped its charge, but man, yeah, you, you just you can't mess. It doesn't even matter sometimes if it's a, a fairly domesticated animal. Mm -hmm. You've got to respect nature. You got to respect mm -hmm. their space. Mm -hmm. You know, like when I was cleaning my aunt's horse one day, she's like, okay. And you walk around behind him. And I'm like, oh, I'm not walking yeah. behind that no, guy. I've, I've heard a horse's kick. And she's like, take a light, nice long way around and be calm. He'll be fine. Okay. Uh, if you say so, if you say so, yeah. I'll stick to the front and feed them carrots and apples. Mike, right. thank you for this. We appreciate you filling in for Alex. Uh, Remya, sorry, you want to give a horse slot in there? Oh, no, we muted Ramya too quickly. Uh, Ramya, we got to say goodbye to you. We got to say goodbye to everybody. We're out of time on the show. We'll be back again tomorrow morning, though, at 9 a.m. Eastern time. That's the way the production team lets me know. No more conversation. We're just muting everyone. Sometimes they just mute me. Some of you might argue they should do it more. We'll be back again tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-TV. Until then, I'm Dave Brown reminding you to play safe, play fair, but don't forget to hug a bear. Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern Time on AMI-tv. Hi, I'm Red Sale, inviting you to download the latest episode of My Life in Books, where internationally acclaimed authors discuss their lives, their work, and three books that have resonated with them. That's My Life in Books, available wherever you get your AMI podcasts.